Well, good morning. John chapter 11, you can turn back there again as we return to this this incredible story uh, before us. As you're turning there, just one quick housekeeping matter to let you know about. Right after the service, uh, this room is going to be hosting a lunch. Uh, The elders are going to be eating with the families just going through the new members class and some of the the more recent new members. So it would be helpful when we're finished with the service if we could make our way out and have our fellowship outside a little bit quicker than maybe is typical. We'll be moving chairs and setting up tables and things. Uh, I hate to sound as if I'm impeding on fellowship. We don't want that at all, but we'll maybe just do it in a different location as we, as we work to get that set up. That would be helpful. Uh, John 11, we're going to look closely this morning at the first 16 verses of this chapter. Last week we tried to go through most of the entire chapter, or certainly the entire account, uh, with Lazarus, his death, and then his resurrection. What we're going to do this morning are two things. The first is really meant to be in service to the second as we look at these verses. The first thing that we'll do is to try to make some points of explanation that might be helpful as to what is said here in in these verses. And we want to always work to do that as we're going through God's Word because we want to be moving forward together constantly in how well we understand what's being said. Now, we can't draw the right conclusions if we misunderstand what is said in a particular place. So we'll go to to several places and try to explain a little bit what is intended. Um, The second thing that we'll do, though, really, is to use that and to try to focus in particular on the statement that Jesus is going to make in verse 4. He's going to say there about this illness that Lazarus is then sick with. He'll say, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Uh, I think when we come to passages with as weighty of application to our lives as this one, it warrants us to stop and to think very carefully about what's being said here and what we're to do with the reality that he's giving us. So we'll try to do that faithfully this morning. Uh, To begin, I'll read the first 16 verses of this chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. 
After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll start here this morning by being sure that we're clear what is meant in a few places here of what's been said. The first place that I'll direct your attention to is verse 2. There's maybe a slight potential for stumbling here, or at least something that can be helpful to be cleared up. Uh, What we read there is a clarification that John puts in about which Mary it is that he's talking about. And we need that explanation because there are a lot of ladies named Mary in these accounts uh, surrounding the Lord's earthly ministry. The, The problem is maybe best seen in John 19 when it's naming the women who were standing by Jesus' cross. Here they are, John 19, 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So you've got his mother, what's her name? Mary, his mother's sister, whose name is Mary, and Mary Magdalene. And this Mary isn't even any of those. This is a number four Mary here. And so John has to clarify in verse 2 exactly who he's talking about. Um, That's not really a problem. What's a bit surprising, maybe, is the way that he chooses to use to clarify who he's talking about. Because he clarifies which Mary this is by referencing an event that is going to happen next chapter, in chapter 12. He brings up an event that he hasn't given us yet in this account. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. We're going to see that in chapter 12 when we get there. You can find it in verses 2 and 3. His mention of it here really says a lot to us, though, about that event, doesn't it? Doesn't that make clear just how well known that act of hers has become at this point already in church history when John writes this? And in fact, what I'd suggest is that it's yet another time. We've seen several of these. This is another time where John is implicitly expecting his readers to be familiar already with the content that's been captured in one way or another among the synoptic gospels. John wrote his gospel last and quite possibly quite a bit of time in between. And he is operating on the assumption that his readers are aware of these things. This event in particular, he can assume all those who are reading his gospel are familiar with what this Mary did. And so it's an easy and helpful way to identify her here as the one who did this to our Lord. But it's just good to know that this is what's coming. So when we get to it in chapter 12, we're not, we don't deal with any whiplash or we're not confused there. Uh, a second place to quickly clarify is what we see in verses 8 to 10. Look down at verse 8. Let me read those again and be thinking about the question, what, what is the point that Jesus is making here? It's maybe not immediately evident to us. 
The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. It's helpful here if we keep in mind what it is he's replying to. He's told them they're going back to Judea, and what they responded with was fear. They're afraid of what will happen if he and they go back to that region. And what we have here is instead of simply telling them, do not be afraid, what Jesus does is he quotes a proverbial saying, and then he makes a point with it. And I think it's helpful if we, if we understand what he's doing there. We could even just use a couple of maybe three steps here of reasoning. So remember these. Number one, Jesus has already said of himself, hasn't he? I am the light of the world. This is quite a bold statement that he's made. Uh, this, is, this is a big feature in what he's saying about himself through this gospel. He is the light of the world. Number two, then he quotes this proverb. There are 12 hours in the day, which essentially speaks to the fact that there is a fixed time available to us to do our work each day, and you cannot add to or take away from the number of hours of daylight that there is to do the work. There's nothing you can do to lessen it. There's a time given for the work to be done in the light. He says that in response to their fear about what might happen if they go to Judea, And so his point then is simply that until he has finished doing his work, he, and by implication they, are completely safe. They don't need to be afraid as long as he is doing the work that he's come here as the light of the world to do. I read someone express this well. They paraphrased what Christ is saying here like this. I wanted to share this with you. Here's their paraphrase. My 12 hours of ministry, my day of work, is not yet over. There is no fear of my life being cut off before the time. I shall not be slain till my work is done. I am like one walking in the full light of the sun who cannot fall. The night will soon be here when I shall walk on the earth no longer, but the night has not yet come. You see how this answers their expression of fear about what he plans to do in his work. And it applies to them as well. As long as as his disciples, as long as he is with them, as their light, as the light, no harm is going to come to them. They have nothing to fear. Jesus is going to talk about and describe the coming night in a number of places, a couple of key ones. He'll say to his disciples in Matthew 26, 31, He'll say, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. When the shepherd is struck and he is no more, there's a scattering, night has come, there's a fear there that was not there when the shepherd was with them. Or just hear how he words this in Luke 22 to those who were coming to arrest him that night. Luke twenty-two fifty-three, he says to them, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. You hear what he's saying? You couldn't touch me as long as I was here as the light, but now that my work is done, now is the time, now has come the hour of darkness. 
And so now you are here and you will take me away. So maybe a very shorthand way to understand Jesus' reply here to their fear is to simply hear him to be saying, until my work is finished, you don't need to be afraid. That's something for us to clarify. The third and final thing we'll clarify this morning is the statement that Thomas makes in verse 16. Jesus has said, let us go to him. And Thomas says to the others, let us also go that we may die with him. There's not, grammatically, there's not a, a, there's not a way to tell certainly whether the one that Thomas means for them to die with is Lazarus or Jesus? Is he saying, Lazarus has died, let's go and die with him? Or is he saying, if we go, Jesus is sure to die. So let's go too. If he's going to die, let's go die with him. I've been surprised this week to see most seem to take Thomas to be doing the second of those, to be referring to Jesus. A suspicion he has that this trip is sure to lead to Jesus' death which if you remember that he doesn't, again, um, well, he's very near, right, isn't he, to the, to the time in which this region does bring his death. Um, I have had my concept, it's been very helpful to me, thinking about what Thomas says here. I think my conception of Thomas has enlarged a bit this week because I've tended to read in the past, to read what Thomas says here uh, when he says, let us also go that we may die with him. I've tended to read that and hear simply a display of courage. And I do think we see courage here. He, he's identifying a potential for death and he's saying, let's go. Let's go die with him. However, many have pointed out, and I, I'm persuaded that they have something here, that, that we're also learning something about Thomas's personality. Something of his personality profile. No one else put it this way, but I think that we might be seeing that Thomas has what I call sometimes Eeyore syndrome. You're familiar with Eeyore, the gloomy, I won't try to do an impression of him, always sees things and sees the dark side of them, always expects something bad, uh, those kinds of assumptions. Thomas appears two more times in this gospel. There's three times that he speaks out and his words are recorded. Um, it's going to be Thomas who, after Jesus says they know the way to where he is going, Thomas will be the one to speak up and say, essentially, what are you talking about? We don't know where you're going. We have no idea how to get there. How can we know? Uh, it's quite a response to say to, to his Lord. And then famously in chapter 20 of John's gospel, Thomas will be the one who will refuse to believe that Jesus has risen until he can see him and put his hands where, uh, where the nails have been. So it's been noted that in the only times that we're actually given a picture of Thomas, he seems to display a temperament that's ready to take the worst view of a situation. It's helpful to know, and yet notice that even here in verse 16, even if that is the way his temperament tends, he is true and faithful to the Lord. There is no mention here at all of a consideration of not walking with Christ, not going with him. He is with him. He just expects it to lead to his death. And there's an observation that's made here 
Uh, J.C. Ryle said this. You'll be able to tell, I think, by the time we're finished this morning. I was greatly helped by um, Ryle's thoughts on this passage. I'll share a few things with you before we're finished this morning. Uh, this is so helpful. And I, th- I think that when we find this mindset in the body of Christ, we are finding such a sign of maturity and safety in the way that we are thinking. Or maybe to say it another way, immaturity cannot recognize the nuance that Ryle brings out here. And I find this to be very important. This is what he said. Let us observe how extremely unlike one another Christ's disciples were. Peter, for instance, overrunning with zeal and confidence, was the very opposite of desponding Thomas. Yet both had grace and both loved Christ. We must... Sorry. We must not foolishly assume that all Christians are exactly like one another in details of character. We must make large allowances when the main features are right. Let us take heed that we really belong to Christ. That is the one thing needful. If this is made sure, we shall be led by the right way and end well at last. We may not have the cheerfulness of one brother or the fiery zeal of another or the gentleness of another. But if grace reigns within us, and we know what repentance and faith are by experience, we shall stand on the right hand in the great day. That is so important. To be aware and to appreciate more and more the multifaceted vessels that our Lord has chosen in his kindness to use, to bless, to equip. And the extent to which we continue to be, even when we are in Christ and being, uh, being sanctified after his image, we continue to be very different from one another in a number of ways. And yet the Lord uses us, the Lord gives us grace. This is helpful. So that's the final clarification there. Maybe a, a deeper sense, potentially, of what we're seeing in Thomas's statement there. Now, what I want us to do with the rest of our time then this morning is consider what we're finding here as a whole and how it fits with what Jesus says in verse 4 when he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. The sum and substance of these first 16 verses is essentially that a certain man gets sick and dies. That's what's happened. If you dig a little bit deeper than that, you come up with some obviously important details here. One is, quite simply, Jesus loved this man. Another is, Jesus deliberately timed his arrival such that he would not arrive in time to heal him. Another is that Jesus said that the outcome of the situation was going to be, verse 4, the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. What I'd like us to do here is to complement and maybe round out the big picture that we tried to take in last week. What do we get when we step back here in these first 16 verses and ask what it is we're really seeing? 
And in particular, what are we seeing about the Lord Jesus Christ as he responds this way and walks this way? And I want us to notice several things. There will be four things here that we see from Christ Jesus. And some of it is going to speak directly about the context of illnesses. But I hope, I won't say this again this morning, but I hope it's obvious as we talk about illness that that can really stand very easily for a host of other words you could put in there, couldn't it? Injury, death, natural disaster. There's all kinds of things we could put in there that what we're seeing here about, about our Lord and illness would apply in those contexts as well. So remember our ability to interchange those kinds of ideas here and what we're seeing on display. So let's notice these together. The first that we can notice very easily is we're seeing here the love of Christ amid seasons of illness. In fact, as simple as some of it may be, we're actually shown quite a bit here about illness. Let me reread verses 4 to 6. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. There is so much here that we're given in simply that description. Some of it is little. And yet not so little when we're in the midst of it. Things like, those whom Jesus loves get sick. Sickness is no clear indication that God is displeased with us. I hope that's the kind of statement that we immediately nod to and take. And yet, I think we know there are times in our lives where that can be a legitimate question and struggle. We find here a principle that is proven in our own experience as well, which is that God intends our seasons of trial for good purposes. You can see that explicitly in the way that verses 5 and 6 are stated. This trial period, it says, is for the glory of God, Verse 4, but then in verse 5, it describes the situation as a manifestation of his love for them. That's what's happening here. That's what we're seeing. And that can sound strange to us, but I think it's far less so when we really just stop and think about it and think about our own lives and experience. Often we find God sending sickness in ways that self-evidently bless our souls. not really bless our bodies. We have to maybe get creative to think of the ways that his, his, his purpose is for us, what he does when he sends us illness, blesses our bodies. Our bodies are wasting away through our lives. We know that. And illnesses are a big part of how that might happen. But the things he sends us, it's not hard to see how they bless our souls. I would ask you, have you not found in some of those seasons whether we're talking illness for yourself or for someone that you, deep, you deeply care about, that it was in that season of your life that you prayed like you had not prayed before. You've had other seasons where prayer was a dry thing, a chore, very difficult, 
and yet you find in one of these seasons that it flows like it never has. Your communion with God in prayer erupts. Or that you have found in those times sometimes that you have suddenly hungered for the scriptures like you had not before. Or that maybe it's then and even only then sometimes that the addiction pull of entertainment and pleasures of this world are suddenly gone from you. Those things find no appeal or purchase in you in the midst of this affliction, this illness. Maybe a thing you've moaned about and felt ashamed about how much you wrestle. Sometimes it's in that very season that you're freed from that and the Lord works mightily through it. Or maybe that in just such a season is when you suddenly become aware of how grateful you are for certain people that God has put around you that you had been taking for granted. Your eyes are suddenly open to see how much kindness you have been given, how much that person means to you. Have you not found those things to be true in those very seasons of illness that God would bring? So even in simple ways, there are some profoundly helpful things shown to us here regarding illness. As we understand that Jesus' love for us is not driven away in our times of illness. But in fact, they're part of his purposes in loving us and bringing God's love to his people. So that's one. Here's another thing that we can observe here. And this is that Christ, and I'll say this very intentionally this way, Christ, our King, is also our friend. Notice how that is what's emphasized here several times. Lazarus is identified to Jesus as he whom you love. You have the statement again then in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you have Christ's own words in verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is how Jesus speaks of this man. Christ, our king, is our loving friend. It's good to say it like that because of how dangerous it is to, to come at our Lord and our thinking with one or the other of those elements absent. It's only when we have both of them that we're putting Christ into the right place in our lives. He is our king, and he is our friend. Leave out the king part, and a few things happen very quickly. What you have is a sense of love from Christ, but then by necessity, if the king part is absent from my thinking, what I have is a weak, really contentless sort of love that's so often articulated. Maybe the kind of love that the world thinks of as love. So now Christ is the one who is my friend and loves me by affirming any thought, whim, action I might undertake. He's just my friend. It's what's behind what we've seen quite often in recent decades and been spoken of in the music world in terms of uh, Jesus is my boyfriend kinds of praise songs. Right? He's my friend. He loves me. I can take his name out of that song, put in the name of anyone that I have a crush on, and the song just manages to still work just fine. There's really nothing uncomfortable in it at that point. 
It's without question that he is our king, and we have to remember that. What that would say to us in this context is that he is one who makes demands on my life and deserves absolute obedience and submission. He'll say to his disciples in John 13, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But do you remember what the context is there, what he's just done before he says that to them? You remember that he's just finished washing their feet? It's not a chore for us as God's people to bow low, trembling before him. It's not a chore for us to say genuinely in any situation, not my will, but your will be done. Because we know that the one that we bow to is the lover of our soul. He truly cares for us. He counts us his friend. We're right to sense in Jesus Christ, our greatest friend. Remember what we'll hear in John 15. We've just heard it uh, read to us before we began here. If you'd like, you can turn back to that. John 15, 12, it's just a few pages over at this point. Jesus will say this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. There is an intimacy, a closeness, an eagerness to share and to lead. Christ can turn to his disciples here in our passage and say of Lazarus, Our friend Lazarus. I wonder if you sense when you hear him say that. I wonder if you sense how much it will be worth to you one day. Uh, how much, um, excuse me, how much, how much more it will be worth that day than all the riches that this world could possibly offer you in this life to stand then before the risen Christ and hear him address you. with those words, my friend. What else will matter if that is how he greets you when you come into his presence? My friend. But because of his work in our life, we don't even have to wait until that day. We long for that day to come. We cannot wait for it. But we as his children, we find evidence every day in our life that the one whom we are serving, the one who we are bowing before, this is our friend. He knows me and he loves me. So it's not hard for us to see how much that's worth, that we find this about our Lord here. And that that means that if we, in this life, if we have nothing else, if we have nothing else, but that he calls us his friend, and we are rich, we have everything. So these are the first two things we see here as we stand back and look. We see that Christ's love and our illnesses are not mutually exclusive things. We see that Christ 
our king is a loving friend to his people. And still there's more to see here. The next thing that we see that's especially helpful in this context here that we have before us, we see that Christ is the one who truly knows best in terms of timing. This may be one that is more necessary for us to think on than the one before it. I hear that Christ is my friend, and in large part, that makes sense. I'm thankful for it. There may be seasons where I really wrestle with with whether or not that's true, but I'm immediately comforted by that. There's something about this one that requires us to chew on it. Christ truly knows what's best in terms of timing of what he brings to our life. This, again, is something of just tremendous importance and wisdom. And I'll read again now from what Ryle wrote. This was back in 1869, by the way. And it's helpful, I think, to me, anyway, to hear, to hear from, from people from other times and eras and to realize how many of our struggles of thought and experience are just absolutely common to mankind. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the children of God must constantly school their minds to learn the great lesson here before us. Nothing so helps us to bear patiently the trials of life as an abiding conviction of the perfect wisdom by which everything around us is managed. Let us try to believe not only that all that happens to us is well done, but that it is done in the best manner, by the right instrument, and at the right time. We are all naturally impatient in the day of trial. We're apt to say, like Moses, when loved ones are sick, heal her now, O God. We forget. We forget that Christ is too wise a physician to make any mistakes. It is the duty of faith to say, my times are in your hand. Do with me as you will, how you will, what you will, and when you will. Not my will, but yours be done. Now the problem, of course, is that often his ways and his timing don't make any sense to us in what we're able to see. That's the problem. And it may be one of the purest expressions of our rebellion against God found in this, that when we're confronted with a circumstance that, don't, that doesn't make any sense to us, that so often our first instinct is to question the presence of his goodness or to question the presence of his hand in the matter at all. Very often that's the first suspicion that we come to. And I'll share with you now, I'll continue to read what he wrote. I think this is the last thing I'll share from Ryle. I just couldn't not share these with you. They were very helpful to me. He writes, at times like these, a Christian must call into exercise his faith and patience. He may rest assured. Listen to this. Do you believe this? He may. He may rest assured that the circumstances in which he is placed are precisely those which are most likely to promote his graces and to check his besetting sins. He need not doubt that what he cannot see now, he will see, he will understand hereafter. 
he will find one day that there was wisdom in every step of his journey, though flesh and blood could not see it at the time. If the twelve disciples had not been taken back into Judea, they would not have seen the glorious miracle of Bethany. If Christians were allowed... Tell me if this has not been proven true in your life. If Christians were allowed to choose their own course through life, they would never learn hundreds of lessons about Christ and his grace, which they are now taught in God's ways. Let us remember these things. The time may come when we shall be called to take some journey in life which we greatly dislike. When that time comes, let us set out cheerfully and believe that all is right. Our Lord is too wise a physician to make mistakes. He knows what he is doing. He knows what is the best timing of our paths in life. We see it here in what he does in and through Lazarus. Fourth, then, thing that we see here has to do with the grave. And it comes because of what a display of strength this is in terms of what Jesus says he's going to do. We find that such is Jesus' strength that the grave itself is a conquered enemy. Just hear the peace in verse 11. Hear the confidence that our Lord speaks with when he names his intention. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And here in those words, the reason that if we are in Christ, we need not fear death. The very moment that our Lord calls out to us in the tomb, for that tomb to give us back, all it will be able to do is obey. There was a comment, Dennis made a comment in our care group this last week, we were talking about this passage, and maybe many other people have said it, and I just had never heard it before, but I... It was striking to me. He he described that uh, when Jesus commanded to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, that he had to be sure to mention Lazarus' name because if he hadn't, then all of them would have come out. I just had never heard that before, but that was striking to me. And, of course, it's a joke, right? We understand he didn't need to mention Lazarus' name to, to bring his intentions across. But what's the truth in that statement? There is truth there. Some truth. It's the reality that he truly possessed that level of authority over the grave. And we remembered last week his claim in John 5 that a day is in fact coming when that's exactly what he's going to do. He will call and all the dead will be brought forth by the sheer authority of his command. It won't be able to do anything else. Such is the strength and authority in the person of Jesus Christ. And my friends, here is what believers here this morning need to be reminded of. And what those among us who have not confessed out loud their trust in Jesus Christ and bent their knee to him as their Lord, it's what you need to hear. You must hear it. It's that all of this leads to the conclusion that what ought to make us tremble is not the thought of the grave. It's the thought 
of not belonging to Christ. It's the thought of standing one day before God Almighty, who sees all, knows all, standing before him with no advocate. That is the only reasonable fear in light of the confidence in Jesus' voice here. Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And isn't that exactly how we were warned by our Lord? Like what's recorded of his saying in Luke 12, 4, he said this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, which is an amazing way to say that. Don't be afraid of those who the worst they can do is kill your body. We usually think as if that's the worst that could be done. Don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you, he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. Our Lord tells us to be afraid at that thought. We're not playing around here. Our Lord is not playing around as he speaks to his friends and he tells them, this is what you are to fear. You fear that and you run to me because I am the only Savior that has been given. By whom sinful men and women will not stand unaided one day before the throne and the judgment of God. But what does that mean about our Lord that we're hearing here this morning? In Christ Jesus, then, we have nothing to fear at all. We need not fear God's wrath because Jesus has already borne it in our place at the cross. And we need not fear death because in death I am present with the Lord, safe in his hands, and in a single instant of his choosing, my death itself will be undone. This is the gift of fearlessness that is described in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. If you want, you can turn there, or you might just want to listen to this, how this is said. He's talking about those whom God has made his children and what Jesus has done for them. And he says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is our last enemy. Death is a fearful enemy. But by Jesus' death, he says, we are delivered from what in all mankind is otherwise lifelong slavery to a fear of death. We are set free from that because of the promises that are ours in Christ. I would have us end this morning by seeing one last statement together. If you would turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 and find verse 56. I'll read verses 56 and 57. Paul writes this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. Sin stains. My stain of sin, the shame of it, the weight of that sin on me, the guilt of it, Shame and guilt are taken away from me at the cross because it's in his blood that my shameful stains are actually washed clean, washed clean. White as snow is the language that's used to describe it. Separated from me as far as the east is from the west is how scripture describes it. The guilt that I should rightly bear for all eternity, he has taken it from me. And he has borne it in my place. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the news of what he has come to do for hopeless, helpless sinners like us. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And he is speaking of so, so much more there than an endless progression of seconds and minutes. He's talking about true life, abundant, freedom. We have been set free. Our God speaks to us this morning by his word, and what he reminds his children today is that in our trials and in our illnesses, the love of his son Jesus is palpable and is even displayed by and through those experiences. We're reminded that the one who rules over us as our king, who has subdued us to himself, as our king, is also our loving friend. The friend who loves us most. We're reminded that in the timing of our Lord's plans for us, all that we see on display is perfection. He truly knows what he is doing. And finally, we're reminded that such is the strength of that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, that even the grave itself is a conquered enemy before him, one that must obey the call of our Lord when he calls. This is what we see in this text this morning. My friends, why on earth? Why on earth would a situation arise in our lives in which we would not run to Someone like that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we confess readily together before you. Not only that that is true. But that despite its truth. Often that is what we do. Often we run from you. Often we believe the lie that says that relief, safety, blessing must be found somewhere else outside of your word, your warnings, your commands, your descriptions of who we are and what this world is. We give in to the the godless notion that we are able to find and know goodness and safety and blessing apart from you. Father, forgive us for those times that we do that. 
But more than that, Father, we pray that you would continue your work sanctifying us, transforming our mind, that we might truly live what we know to be true from passages like these. That your son is our great king who loves us. He does all things well. And it is always the right, wise path to choose to trust him in all things that come and to follow after him in spite of the cost. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who went before us. We thank you for his perfect life, his perfect death on our behalf. Oh Lord, we trust only in him and his righteousness before your throne. Thank you for him this morning, and we pray in his name. Amen.